Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us for the ASHP Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. This series focuses on leadership topics within pharmacy practice, including the business of pharmacy, development of leadership skills, career transitions, and more. My name is Derek Grimm, System Director of Medication Management at WVU Medicine, and I will be your host today for this Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Jillian Foster, System Pharmacy Administrator for Baptist Memorial Healthcare Corporation, Tamara Bezacek, Medication Policy Manager at Fairview Pharmacy Services in Minnesota, and Tabin Main, Director of Pharmacy, Multicare Capital Medical Center, to discuss best practices for health systems in deciding what service areas to integrate and how. Welcome Jillian, Tammy, and Tabin, and thanks for joining us today. And for our first question, uh, we'd like to ask, uh, how does your health system leadership team decide what should be left to local governance versus a system group, and how do you navigate dissenting opinions regarding that standardization? That's a great question and maybe one of the most important questions to think about when leading health system pharmacy teams, I feel like. We've given a lot of thought at Baptist about um, the role of our system teams and the role of the local teams. I think both are important and there's certainly a place for both. We've tried to formalize that because we felt it was helpful through charters that may help define those roles. Examples would be things at the local level that they will know best, uh, drug shortages, what their current situation is with a drug shortage, medication errors and the drill downs. Those are great things for the local government teams and committees to focus on. But certainly the lessons they learned that can be sent to a system committee to spread their good work and share in their action plans so that we can standardize that across our system has proven to be a good method for us. Um, those local teams uh, just really emphasize the importance of those because that that governance, I feel like, is uh, where we see some really creative, innovative ideas come forward. It allows the local entities to pilot things that then can be shared at a system level and others learn. And, and again, we spread that. And so that that concept has worked well for us. Yeah, I agree. We found a lot of success with having a lot of system governance and really setting that stage early through conversations that include multiple partners and key stakeholders at the local levels. Doing so has really helped us identify potential risks or barriers ahead of time and upfront so that we can mitigate through that and determine how to best standardize as a system. Then further recognizing how to take those variances between each site at the local level and create carve-outs for those individual needs. That has helped us uh, tremendously to take each component, recognize the challenges, and it also has really benefited to catch those kind of resistant or concerning factors that uh, may not have otherwise been seen at the system level to really make sure we're all on the same page and to overcome any of those misunderstandings. I would say that, you know, very similar experience at our site as well. Our senior leadership really utilized our recent health system integration as an opportunity to review nearly all of our clinical and operational processes. We were challenged from our senior leaders to always think with a system hat on 
So kind of a one site with different practice areas, despite being multiple hospitals and clinics. And what this did was force us to really focus on best practices, keeping the patient care at its core. And this charge led to the creation of several overarching system committees, which each site and clinical specialty has representation on these committees to serve as that voice, kind of what Tabin was referring to, for each department and service line. We saw, and this works really well, um, with the creation of one system, overarching system pharmacy and therapeutics committee, as well as a system medication and safety committee. And that PNT committee created just one single formulary and the medication safety committee now has a clear direction on medication safety and able to present data metrics for each site. There are still many decisions left to the local level at our health system, such as the development of operational procedures and specific training and education needs that each site may have. You know, for example, our academic health center has a large cancer care service as well as a pediatric hospital. And the pharmacy practice for many of our pharmacists and technicians at that site is significantly different than the smaller community hospitals. And to assist with the evolving needs and quick turnaround time for some changes, our health system holds weekly system operations huddles and system clinical practice meetings for the leaders at each site. These meetings kind of serve as check-in points for all of our hospitals to connect, ask questions, discuss any challenges that they may be having, and share any recent knowledge that has come up. These committees discuss options on how to optimize electronic health record, whether it be for our inpatient operations units or clinical guideline development. We also serve uh, these subgroups to communicate any sort of implementation projects that are coming up and address a unified approach to drug shortages, just as a few examples. They're also a great way to cascade information from other system committees. I would say as for navigating dissent, Derek, this is a really great question. Leading through change, as well as being on the receiving side of change, is very difficult and, and emotional. And it seems as soon as we successfully complete an implementation or project, it's time to change again. So I really like to encourage our leaders to welcome healthy conflict and factor in time for this when we're developing our implementation plans. I say this because the most important thing we can do as leaders is listen to the worries and concerns of our colleagues or teammates. We know that most, if not all, change um, to come has been well thought out with best practice at the center of the decision. And I find, though, those with the strongest dissent really first just need to be heard and listened to. Sometimes this dissent is due to misunderstanding of the reason behind the change, and it's quite possible that communication was lacking to get that point across. So I find it's worth it to spend the time to revisit the intent of the change. Second, sometimes the dissent comes from fear because our teammates they think with patient care hats, and they may have great insight into things we need to monitor or data to collect, really to understand if our new process is truly the right direction to go. I always feel after a heartfelt discussion that we can come to a common place of next steps. We work in a field with exceptionally brilliant people with huge hearts, so our team deserves the time to be heard and really followed up with. The changes we're talking about are massive and they're very scary. 
So I think anything we can do to address concerns is well worth the time and, and hopefully will lead to stronger engagement in the end. Yeah, I think those are some really great points. And I just want to add a little bit to that. You know, we've seen a few examples where we've started to implement some change. And there are times where smaller sites can pivot really quickly and make those adjustments very rapidly, while other times with other changes, larger sites might have more resource to kind of disseminate that and more bandwidth to to share that. Sometimes it's hard to see those anticipated barriers upstream. And so I really agree that it's important to communicate early, have representation from all your sites, and to work out some of those potential gaps uh, that just can't be seen on that initial approach. And, and change with it being so rapid with a number of challenges that we're constantly facing in healthcare today. Sometimes we we see the need for change and we're forced to, to adapt so rapidly uh, that we can sometimes forget to pause and take the necessary steps to really evaluate the downstream effects from this. And so I, we really found some tremendous success through that collaboration and that open discussion with mutual respect, even recognizing that disagreement is okay and it's positive and it moves us into the right direction as a whole. Ivan, I would agree with that. And I just would also offer that we have challenged ourselves on when is it okay to not be standardized on a policy or a process or a procedure. And so I think an example of that is we too, uh, like you all described, work back and forth a good bit with healthy discussion, and we usually can arrive at one standardized approach, and we are at consensus. But sometimes we're in three states, and the boards of pharmacy regulation, for good reasons, may be different in our three states. And so we may find ourselves in situations where we are not standardized, and we agree to not be standardized. And so I think it's important as leaders to be able to um, know when those are appropriate areas to to not be consistent in. Uh, We often revisit those and and see if we can come back to consensus or back to standardization. Um, But I think we are learning to be comfortable with when it is okay not to be standardized on a particular item. And so that's been a a challenge just as our system has grown and and trying to, to get comfortable, as I said, with those opportunities. That's all really great discussion, and thank you for sharing your approach at each of your respective uh, health systems. Within your your health system, do your site leaders have system leadership responsibility, and how do you determine who leads which of the uh, system groups? One lean approach at Baptist that we've used to growing our system infrastructure is to tap a local leader who has a full-time job and full-time responsibilities there which they continue and retain, but we ask them to take on a dual role and have some system leadership or system responsibility. Uh, Typically, that's been facilitating one of our system committees. This has worked well for us at Baptist in oncology and antimicrobial stewardship in the formulary arena. And so the process I've used is um, identifying those individuals based on maybe their training or their certification in an area or their proven leadership in an area 
and then visiting with their local administration to ensure that they feel they have the capacity and could support them serving in that dual role. Um, and then I've been able to approach a few individuals uh, to do that. It's worked well for us. I know that's a challenge for those folks. They've done very well. It is a, a comfortable way and maybe a, an easy first approach as you're growing your system team to ease into that um, kind of work by doing the dual role. Yeah, that's really interesting, Jillian. Our, our health system takes a very similar approach as well. Our models uh, it seem sound very similar. We have many site leaders that hold system leadership responsibilities as well. And in fact, we have really very few who hold sole system roles. Instead, we have appointed site-based managers or clinical coordinators to hold committee chair positions or represent system work on our service line groups, uh, which are tasked to develop and maintain FERSEDs, treatment plans um, in our electronic health record. Examples of site-based leaders on different committees are, I, I mentioned earlier that we have a system operations committee, and that, that committee is co-chaired by two operations managers from our different community hospitals. And our similar to Jillian, our PNT subcommittees are chaired by clinical leaders at our different hospitals as well. For us, that the good examples would be our anticoagulation subcommittee and our oncology subcommittee. These site-based leaders tend to be appointed based on their medical expertise, the patient populations that they care for at their sites, and of course, their desire to lead. And we, we've had very good success with this, but similar, it's tough. It's tough to balance it all, but they are doing a fantastic job. Yeah, and I would just add a little bit to that. You know, some of our local leaders have, like Jillian said, some system committee leadership opportunities that are in addition to their full-time role. And I think it's really brought the team together in different ways that may not have otherwise occurred. I think it allows for more frequency to connect and strengthen unity among the leadership group, uh, to collaborate through those common challenges and barriers. When you have some of those local leaders leading those initiatives, they're, they're more able to quickly identify some of those needs and opportunities. But I think it also has provided the capacity for us to better understand each leader's demands, their capacity, and how we can mutually support each other through the collaborative teamwork approach. So I've seen my peers and colleagues reach out to each other for support and say, hey, why, why don't I take that off your plate and help with that initiative? Or that really just, I think, provides so much benefit to manage the ebbs and flows of the demands that we are facing in healthcare. Well, thank you each uh, for sharing your approach within your own organizations. How would you recommend approaching policy standardization as your system expands and further integrates? So I will preface this with our hospital recently merged with another system. And so we naturally had the daunting task to undergo massive policy conversion and review what we had in place to align with the new system. And so this was both relieving and stressful at times. Stressful in a matter of having to review the sheer number of policies that we have in pharmacy, but also relieving in the sense that there was additional eyes and support on what we were previously managing. 
And so depending on the situation in the group, there, there might be some frontline staff that feel it more restrictive to lose that autonomy that you have at a single site as you standardize policies. But it also, I see you know, a number of staff having significant relief from the pressures as they can lean onto the system, especially when working with a difficult provider, uh, just to say, hey, we've got this policy in place and we really don't have any opportunity at the local level. So it, it it's a really a give and take. Um, as I work with my colleagues, it can be challenging to engage all the various stakeholders in a discussion early enough to help everyone feel heard and to make sure they're given an opportunity to contribute. But it is important to get that buy-in early as we've converted through those policies. I've seen a number of successful practices of colleagues divvying up those policies so that there's ownership, there's efforts to ensure that we work through those gaps and to systematize the documents. I'm incredibly proud of our team that, that took that on, even from a frontline pharmacist level, to review that, make sure that our current practices were in line with those new policies as we standardize, and then to mitigate that and learn how we could adapt our workflows to meet those, those standards. Some policies need to involve operational leaders, med safety leaders, technician leaders, compliance leaders, while others just need, you know, a, a small subgroup. And so those needs can vary widely depending on both the content and the passions within the work group or key players. And this is not just within pharmacy. This can be nursing leaders, physician leaders, lab and other departments. Uh, recently, I was part of a discussion that was aimed to catch this earlier and have those upstream discussions. We were probably on our sixth or seventh review of the, the document and owners had spent so much time meticulously navigating the, the language of the document. And as we brought it to a larger group, you can still see there was a, several concerns and worries from some of those key stakeholders. I give you know tremendous kudos to that owner that said, hey, I think we really need to pause here and, and take another step. So I'm gonna, set up another meeting offline and we can discuss these more and overcome these these concerns. And I I think in all reality there's that that was just a really good awareness to say it's not ready, even though the work had been overhauled time and time again. And there's a good balance, right, between site contributions as well as senior level executives that need to be inserted for consistency. Making sure, like Jillian said earlier, balancing that alignment and then recognizing where we need to frame our language that allows for that variation due to the differences between the site. So it can require a lot of time, but I would say with each of it, it is definitely worth the investment. I can really appreciate the amount of time that goes into that. We, we took a very similar approach as well. After identifying all the policies and procedures that existed, we assigned owners to the different categories of policies. And similar to you, Tabin, the owners varied. Most of them were managers at each of our site, uh, some directors, some higher than that as well. And we viewed this as an opportunity to do a deep dive into you know, what was truly needed as a policy versus maybe a procedure or a guideline. And so it took us a while to kind of really reflect on what 
the previous, you know, what our, our previous policies were and what the rationale was, what did they serve? What we found was when we did that, we sat down to create, or the owners create working groups and take on that time-consuming crosswalk process that I think many of us have been involved with. We really found that best practices surfaced and sometimes we were able to even simplify the language of the policies. We took it a step further to have an overarching general policy because of the charge to systemize as much as we could. But then we would create specific site-based procedures. So if there was a specific standard operating procedure for something, each site is able to outline that. You know, Taven, similar to what you were saying, that this is a very time-consuming process and has took us, I would say, a few years to tackle. Now, we still do have a few site-based policies because we, we aren't able, similar to Jillian before, we aren't able to systemize everything. And it's really difficult to tell a hospital to retire a policy when the information is important to that department. So we're still navigating a bit of that. I would just add another piece of advice around working on standardizations of policies would be a philosophy we've used is that the system policy would be the minimum requirement that would be expected or that would be the best practice. And we've tried to create system policies only around those things that are required by an accrediting body like the Joint Commission, the Board of Pharmacy, or a best practice, you know, industry standard or statement like from ISMP or ASHP. And so those system templates have really outlined the minimum. And then there have been several occasions where a local entity needed to be more stringent, perhaps, in the system document. Um, and that, that is okay and appropriate. And, and we don't often even need that to be discussed further at our system teams, but just recognize that they may have had a specific patient event that may require them to monitor something a little more closely over a period of time that may be and look different than the system policy would suggest. So that philosophy of um, keeping just the minimum content in our policies has served us well and maybe helped us get to consensus on standardization faster in some occasions. Well, I know I've really enjoyed listening to each of your experiences. As we close, are there any lessons learned that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? I think the most obvious one is it takes time, a long time and way more than I would anticipate in some of the projects that I've gone through. The other one I would say is communication is key, especially for our frontline staff that are in the thick of the work. Changing their habits, their workflows, their processes can be very overwhelming. I certainly haven't been perfect in helping facilitate that, but I've learned and seen opportunities to that have helped me kind of improve on that to ensure that I'm there to be supportive of staff when they feel overwhelmed with the sheer amount of information that can occur. I think the other thing is it can be really challenging as a team transitions away from one thing only to be hit by a drug shortage or another regulatory question or concern only to revert back to the original process in place. And that can be frustrating, overwhelming, exhausting for staff, especially in our current climate with various demands on our labor force. Coupling that with changes in formulary status or other 
financial initiatives to um, improve cost savings opportunities. All of those things can just feel like a, a push and pull on staff. And so being mindful of their needs and getting them involved early and, and making sure that they feel heard, I think is critically important. So starting those discussions early, getting their ideas for barriers, and then just regular check-ins to see how that they're doing. The other really big thing that I, I'd say was a key learning is don't underestimate the little guy. Sometimes little hospitals can maybe be forgotten about, but um, or you know dominated by larger hospital needs and volumes and various supply demands. But we've seen a number of examples where some of our small hospitals are really contributing to the overall success of the system, you know, with little things like we've talked about with policy language as we standardize those, those ideas. And we've seen a few instances where that feedback kind of went up through the small sites and really found some roots within system preferences. But then also, you know, just recognizing those collaboration opportunities that can occur with your smaller sites. And we've seen benefits to contribute to larger med safety initiatives within the system. And so really learning from each other, adapting to the challenges that we're facing and moving forward together instead of starting from square one and reinventing the wheel has been just a tremendous support and um, advantage for us in our system. I think that my words of advice mirror that of Tavens pretty closely. I think integration can be an exciting time. It allows us to examine our current state and leverage our teams and their collective knowledge to improve practice and patient care. I truly believe we can do more together. With that said, it's also very important to recognize that change is difficult. And as leaders, we need to create space to listen to worries and recognize the additional responsibilities many leaders are taking on to successfully execute the transformation. The second big piece of advice is I would say to stay positive and stay open to change and the feedback to come. You know, from our experience, very similar to Taven's, that the best ideas for process change have often come from our smaller departments. So make sure that you let everyone have a voice and you take the time to incorporate them. Well said, Tamara. And I think to summarize or state it again, standardization can sound or seem transactional, but as you all have said, it's actually very relational. And I find that what happens between the meetings is as important as the committee work. And so meeting one-on-one with leaders, I think, helps move us past areas that there seems to be dissent or we can't quite come to consensus. I think understanding individual leaders' point of view helps to facilitate the next meeting. I also think as system leaders, it's important that we keep our system committee and infrastructure frequency and cadence at a point that it feels nimble and supportive to all the other hospitals out there. I always am just cognizant of not adding too many meetings that it's tough to keep up with, but that we're able to move system work ahead and that when a local entity sends forward an idea, we're able to meet quickly at the right group with the right multidisciplinary leaders to provide them an answer, a response, or pull forward their idea and standardize that across our system if it would help the rest of our teams. So I think that that cadence is really important. 
this was a great discussion and, and I enjoyed hearing what you all said as well. I agree. I think a lot of what has been shared today makes me think about the quote, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think we're absolutely seeing that, you know, across multiple systems and as we collaborate together and even, you know, collectively as a larger ASHP group, right? We share those ideas, we collaborate so that we can all be better with the care that we provide. And I just appreciated all these comments. Well, that's all the time we have today, but I want to thank Jillian, Tammy, and Tabin for joining us today to discuss best practices for health systems in deciding what service areas to integrate and how. Find more member-exclusive content, including resources for self-development, leading pharmacy enterprises and teams, and practice management on the ASHP website. Thank you for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the at ASHP official podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.